listener production. I think we're getting a lot better at talking about diversity and inclusion, but I think the challenges remain when we really look at is the language actually matching the action? There are a lot of opportunities to level the playing field and start to adapt to the criteria that is relevant to the job. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. I remember the moment that I saw Chelsea Roffey behind the goalposts of a professional AFL match. A young, fit woman in a very visible, highly scrutinised, starkly male domain, confidently signalling the score in front of tens of thousands of one-eyed fans. Chelsea is a speaker, an author, a Churchill Fellow and the first and only woman to have officiated an Australian Football League Grand Final in 2012. Chelsea has now umpired more than 270 AFL games, 16 finals and she sat on the bench as the emergency umpire at five AFL Grand Finals. As well, She holds bachelor degrees in music and journalism, is a published author, and she's travelled the globe examining diversity, gender equality and storytelling. She's also been named Sports Official of the Year in Victoria and Queensland and listed among the Age newspaper's top 100 most influential people. There's more, but I want to get to this interview with Chelsea. So to hear her insights on breaking new ground, where it's led her, and what she sees as the challenges and opportunities for inclusion moving forward. Welcome to Fast Track, Chelsea. Margie, it's wonderful to be here. And thank you for that really beautiful introduction. Well, I could go on and on, but we've got to get to some questions. So the first thing I want to ask is what are some of the lessons and insights that you've gained from this lived experience in the field for so many years as the AFL's sole female official? Footy has been a fantastic learning curve, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, I think umpiring offers some pretty unique lessons. Uh, There are some pretty interesting aspects to the job as it is in terms of stepping out. It's a very exposed kind of position to be in. You are learning and making mistakes in a very public sense and a very criticised, highly scrutinised sense. And I think probably... Being a female in that environment and and for a long time the only female probably just amplified a lot of those lessons through the gender lens. I definitely felt that I was stepping up to the plate with this feeling of no room for error. Uh, I definitely felt that I, I had a job to do out there and it feels really, it feels almost stereotypical to say I felt like I was carrying the mantle a little bit, not only for myself, but in a way, a bit of a cheerleader for, for women, um, which is, again, it's not something that you necessarily set out to do, but it's something you're very conscious of when you are in that environment. So I have learned some lessons in that sense, just through that that sense of scrutiny. And, and I think in a way, a sense of pressure just to, to step up and perform. Because you were a woman and because everybody was watching, I mean, I remember seeing you and just cheering you on, but umpires generally get the worst possible time in Australian rules football. And there were you behind the goals and everyone was watching because you're a woman. Well, yes, that's a, a good point to make. I, I still remember 
the moment that I was appointed uh, to the AFL panel and I received a, a phone call from uh, Jeff Geeshan, who was the umpire's boss down in Melbourne and I was living in Brisbane at the time, it was one of the best phone calls I'd ever received. It was such an exciting moment, but I instantly felt that sense of pressure. Um, and, and months before stepping out onto a field and actually doing a game, I had a lot of media interviews and, and there was media interest, which I totally get, you know, that it was a news story in, in that regard. Um, but I think from that moment, I certainly felt there was a tension there. Mm. And um, with that attention came a sense of responsibility to really just go out there and mm. Well, I think as umpires, we we try to be perfect and we aim for perfection. And in a lot of senses, the the expectation is perfection, even though that's never really realistic. So, I think I thrived on that pressure to a degree, and I and I was really happy to to have that opportunity. But it certainly taught me some lessons in in managing pressure. That's mm, such an interesting insight into what you were experiencing out there while everybody's watching the game. And then those eyes are upon you. So it's eight years after that initial appointment and you were appointed to the AFL Grand Final. Mm. 110,000 people in a stadium. I've been in there for a Grand Final. It's hard to hear yourself even as a spectator. I can't imagine what it feels like to be on the ground as a player or an umpire. And then, you know, you're the first woman to do so. And I'm wondering, have things changed since 2012? It's funny for me to reflect on all of that because it, things did change, but they also hadn't, I realised. Um, just if I think about the, the week leading into the grand final, it was pretty crazy. Uh, it was similar in a lot of ways to that moment of being announced as a, as a female on the panel in that, yes, it was a media story and there was a press conference. And, you know, usually goal umpires can sort of go about their business um, and, and sort of not really be in the limelight so much. Um, but on, on this particular occasion, there was some attention. And um, again, it was it was sort of stepping into that role thinking, okay, I'm, I'm in the spotlight again and I really need to make sure that I'm doing my job. You know, I, I have a, a day job as well. And so through the week I was, I was at work and fielding calls from journalists and just trying to manage that side of things, but also aware of wanting to manage my energy and make sure that on Saturday I, I got out and I did the game uh, to the best of my ability. I performed my role within the team. But um, what was really fascinating was oh, I still remember it was the day of the grand final and um, Julia Gillard, who was the Prime Minister at the time, had requested access to the umpire's rooms and there was a, that moment of, of meeting her and that was a bit of a, you know, a media opportunity um, and it was amazing. When I, when I knew I was going to meet Australia's first female Prime Minister, I thought, well, this kind of rivals doing the game, to be honest. <laughs> but it, it certainly wasn't part of the normal routine that you would do, you know, stepping into a finals environment. But I think the other thing that I really think about when I, when I asked that question, you know, have things changed? I had a very high pressure preliminary final the week before the grand final. And if you can imagine being in the shoes of the umpires, the prelim is really, really important because, you know, they've got to, from those prelims that are, that are played the week before, select the grand final team. And I had a, a few really tight calls in my game. Both of them were actually correct but they were considered to be highly controversial and, and the media were really going on about it. And um, 
it was interesting to see the way that it was reported. And I thought, here we go. It's There were gender connotations in the way that it was reported in terms of, you know, look, she's She's on the cusp of making history, you know, and she, you know, there were some suggestions that, you know, has she slipped up, messed up, you know, lost that opportunity. Um, And I felt I was so angry because I knew that I got the decisions correct, you know, based on the, the vision that we'd seen behind the scenes. So for me, it was sort of like revisiting that narrative from the beginning and going, all right, I've still got something to prove here. Things have changed. I've been around a long time, but I've still got something to prove. And um, for me, by the time the game rocked around, honestly, the game itself was a breeze because I could just step out and, and enjoy it and not worry about that baggage. Um, and, and I think the sense of controversy or whatever whatever else was being thrown into the mix prior to that game. And so it really enabled me just to get out and enjoy it in the moment when that moment finally arrived. You just said you were working at the same time. So this is not a full-time professional job. This is an and for you. So I'm curious how this has actually influenced your broader work, your day job, and combined with solving some of the challenges that we all experience for inclusion in the workplace. So I'm a journalist by trade, and I I think I've got this innate sort of sense of being drawn to narrative and story. So it's been interesting for me to step outside and, and have a look at my own story in a sense and, and better understand, okay, I'm, I'm in this pretty unique position. How might that look like from the outside? How can I use my experience to perhaps challenge um, some of the narratives we have around, around gender or, you know, girls and women in our society? And so being able to marry that journalism with my own story has been a really useful project, um, not only for my work, I think, but for my own sense of self and, and understanding what I've experienced. And so it's led me to a lot of study. I know you you mentioned that I'd uh, done a Churchill Fellowship. So that was a fantastic opportunity as a journalist to travel to five countries uh, around the world and examine this concept of narrative as it relates to gender and really look at how cultures around the world view gender so that I could come back to Australia and think, all right, you know, how are we looking at inclusion and diversity? Is our culture, you know, putting up barriers and how can I use my story to challenge the barriers? So that's essentially the essence of of, of how I've brought together my outside work with my lived experience in the field. And it's been a really fascinating journey for me. Um, yeah, without sounding too self-indulgent, but it's been a really fantastic way to really, I think, flesh out, you know, what's really going on under the surface and and drawing upon some of the experiences I've had to hopefully, you know, help other organisations to to address cultural issues. What do you see as a major challenge for greater diversity in organisations and businesses? I think we're getting a lot better at talking about diversity and inclusion because they're on the agenda. At at this point, people are aware that they are important. But I think the challenges remain when we really look at is the language actually matching the action? And, And I think in a way there's a real opportunity for a paradigm shift. So if, if I just bring it back to my own experience, um, I think one of the most common questions that I've been asked over the past 15 years or so 
has been also what are the barriers that you face as a, a female in a male domain? And it's always about the barriers. It's always within a framework of, you know, if you are from a particular background, be that really any minority that we're talking about in different contexts, it's all about overcoming the barriers. Whereas I think that really takes us away from a growth mindset and being able to just tap into the strengths, to be able to lay a foundation where we're coming from a place where we actually value strengths. And it seems like a pretty simple thing to say, but I think inclusive practice, it it takes a lot of work to actually challenge people's paradigms and and to make sure that that language matches the action. So I think that's where the the real opportunity lies. And the the language can appear from any of us at any time, just from, you know, a whole lot of old paradigms, as you said. And I know the attention placed on you as the minority on that football field would have been intense. Yes, a breakthrough moment. Yes, fantastic. But you're an amazing goal umpire. Amazing. So, you know, I do appreciate focusing on what's strong in that situation rather than the what's wrong. And making connections to strengths is a real opportunity particularly for for young girls and women stepping into male domains. I think sometimes we don't really think about the connections that are there. And I'll often, I'll tell the story about my background. So I, I left high school and studied music, the Conservatorium of Music up in Queensland. I was a clarinet player. And a lot of what I had to do involved performance aspects, things like um, using body language to to really connect to the music, you know, committing pieces to memory and, and performing on a stage. And I didn't really start thinking that had anything at all to do with goal umpiring until quite recently when I think about stepping onto a field, the MCG, a packed MCG, uh, it's a performance. It's, it's all about presentation. It's selling your message through body language. Another example I often talk about is, you know, growing up learning to dance um, when I was younger and, and doing ballet and, and tap lessons and, and that fancy footwork. Again, you don't think about how that can relate to something like goal umpiring um, until you think about the agility that we do, the training, change of direction, running around cones. And often, you know, there's a coordination piece there that I'll look around and go, yeah, I'm doing all right here, you know, compared to the, the boys that might be there. And I think it's just really important to to remind girls to make these connections because they're not always obvious. They're not always traditionally made. And so a lot of the strengths-based stuff really is just tapping into, you know, where is it and where can we draw the links? Transferable skills. Exactly. Bringing it all together. Yeah. Yeah, it's so fantastic. So what have the challenges of the past few years taught you about inclusion and where are the opportunities and what has it taught us? I think particularly in recent times, Probably for the first time ever, we're seeing people who are in the majority actually struggling or working through flexibility with work, having to really adapt quite quickly to change or challenge that might be brought up, you know, suddenly. And I think that actually is a real opportunity for levelling the playing field if if we capitalise on it. So, I can even think, again, I'll use a a personal example, but the way that we uh, do our coaching through AFL umpiring. The past couple of years, you know, with the way the world is, I don't want to say COVID, but now I've said it. Um, (laughs) But I think, you know, the way the world is adapting, 
the AFL is is one example of an industry that I think has actually been quite quite savvy with its relationships and staying ahead of, you know, potentially what's happening and, and uncertainty in order to, to keep the game alive and, and try to keep their business alive. The way that we approach our coaching and our training is no longer face-to-face. We're still expected to perform in an elite environment, but a lot of what we do now obviously has gone online. We have become a nationalised group rather than state-based groups. And a lot of the way that we approach our coaching and, and training now um, is it's about visualisation and discussion and conversation and connecting with other people that I don't think would necessarily happen in a normal year in the past. And in the past, a lot of the focus was on physical training. Now, as a female, that puts a lot of challenge on you uh, physically to, to be capable and competitive with the boys. But as we adapt to this new situation, you know, it's it's a mental game in a lot of respects. And I can just sort of see, although there are a lot of challenges thrown at us, there are a lot of opportunities to level the playing field and start to adapt to the criteria that is relevant to the job. Let's start really looking at, okay, what's relevant for us to measure here and assess? And it might not be getting people to run around a running track, which we've done for the past 30 years, and it's easy and familiar, but how are we actually going to adapt to make sure our criteria matches the needs of the future and the way the game is evolving, you know, from a technology and decision-making sense? So that's just one example, but I think you could look at any industry and go, all right, how do we actually start to look at the criteria and how the opportunities that we have now present a chance to, to do things differently in a way that services the future. Mm. So I think a real opportunity from diversity point of view. Yeah. I, and I love this idea of the capability, looking at what's required and looking at how we are focusing on the strengths, not the barriers, and really being able to seize this opportunity in COVID mm. and what we've learned through the last few years to make opportunities. I'd really love that lens that you're offering mm. up here to us today. The breaking of new ground is something that is continually being talked about. And you are someone who's lived that experience and then shared that experience with others in organisations and through your journalism to help the broader society. So Chelsea, I just have loved speaking to you today. I can't wait to see you the next time I'm looking at an AFL match. Thank you so much for being with us today on Fast Track. Maggie, thank you. I've really loved the conversation and, yeah, I appreciate it. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley, producer Tina Matalov, audio production by Darcy Thompson, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. Listener.